I didn't know Mount Hermon was run by Pentecostals. I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh, happy day. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning to you. Hope you all have had a wonderful start to the week. It's been great uh, for our family to be here. I want to invite you to meet me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew uh, chapter 19. Uh, you may need to take out your phone and don't click on your Fortnite apps, but your Bible apps. Uh, meet me in Matthew chapter, chapter 19. I want to step in the flow of, of what uh, Pastor Gary was sharing last night, especially uh, towards the end when he started to talk about the gospel. And he made the remark that the gospel is not just the door uh, that we just kind of open up. Uh, as soon as he said that, I, I, I thought of my dear friend, uh, J.D. Greer. Uh, J.D. Greer says, the gospel is not just the diving board, it's also the swimming pool. So it's not just something that launches us out, but it's the deep waters we have to swim in daily. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great mid-20th century London preacher, uh, he said the problem with most believers is... We listen to ourselves when we should be preaching to ourselves. And you have to learn to become your favorite podcast preacher. And you have to preach, you have to fire your inner lawyer, as Paul Tripp says, that voice of condemnation. And you have to learn what it means to swim in the deep waters of the gospel daily. To help us with this, I want us to to come to a text that I really think synthesizes the whole gospel of Matthew and what Matthew is about, and I'll explain that to you in just a few moments. Uh, but I believe it is uh, this familiar story to those of us who grew up in the church, uh, found in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. I just want to read through verse 22. We won't read as much as we read yesterday, but I do want us to give us a feel for the story. Matthew writes, And behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher... Notice he doesn't call him Lord, calls him teacher. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> you just want to smack this guy. And Jesus said, listen, listen to the commandments, see if you can figure out where they're from. It's important. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. <laughs> you just want to smack the guy. What do I still lack? It's like he's saying, you got extra credit. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, in the Greek, the idea there is complete. Go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father... We want to take a deep dive into your gospel today. Um, I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis who said that um, the challenge for most Christians is not to be taught something new, but to be reminded of something old. 
So would you remind us, Lord God, of the great narrative of the gospel and its rippling effects to our lives today? Holy Spirit, would you just pull on our heartstrings and encourage us where appropriate, challenge us where appropriate, but ultimately change us more and more into your image. Be with me, your servant today, as the old African-American preachers used to say, stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I hope this is a safe place, and I hope y'all don't judge me. But I love me some Michael Jackson. Now, I just watched the HBO documentary, still processing all that, horrendous. But um, love Mike. Y'all don't understand. Love Michael so much um, (laughs) that when I was a kid, I I begged my father for a jerry curl. Praise God for a godly father (laughs) who knew how to set boundaries with his kids. (laughs) Praise God. Uh, but I, I wanted the drip drip. I wanted, I wanted the jerry curl, the berries and juices. I wanted all of that. Uh, wanted the thriller outfit, the, the beaded outfit. Again, praise God for a godly father. But I just loved, I just loved Michael Jackson. I'm feeling a little judgment in the room right now, by the way. But um, <laughs> love me some Michael Jackson. Love me some Michael Jackson. Uh, of course, his story is, is incredibly familiar. His his, his narrative from um, Gary, Indiana, to, and his rise to the king of pop, very familiar. You, we all understand that Michael was a part of a huge family, and there in Gary, Indiana, and his, um, his dad had big dreams. Uh, he wanted his kids to make it to the big time, and so as the story goes, his dad would come home from work every, every single day from the factories there, and Gary would uh, come, come into the, the little small front room. They'd push the furniture to the edges of the little small front room of their home there in Gary, Indiana, and he would demand that his kids, Michael and his brothers, would go over the dance choreography while he held a belt in hand, waiting on them to miss the steps, because if they missed the steps, they had hell to pay. He was abusive. Now, we got to ask the question, what did that produce? What did that kind of tyrannical parenting produce? Well, on the one hand, you got to go, there was, some, there was some positive outcomes to that. It produced Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. It produced the king of pop, the greatest performer ever. But on the flip side, it also produced something else that was even more devastating. If you ever heard Michael and his brothers later on in life being interviewed and asked by, uh, by the interviewer about their dad, you would notice they, they never referred to their dad as dad or father. They always called him by his first name, Joseph. And what you pick up on here is, is that here you have these incredible performers who had no relational intimacy with their dad. My fear is that's many of you. That when it comes to God, you are an incredible performer. You have amazing consecutive quiet time streaks going on. 
You get up every morning, you got your Bible reading plan, you sit in your favorite uh, uh, lazy boy seat there, you got your warm cup of coffee, your little Beth Moore bobblehead going there, and uh, I love Beth Moore, by the way, love Beth Moore. Uh, but you've got all of that happening, and man, you're, you're just getting through it, man. You're just, you're just checking it off the list. You know what to do in church. You, you, you know when to stand, when to sit, when to kneel. You even know, uh, based on the denomination, how high to raise your, your hands. You know, for example, if you're in a Presbyterian church, don't go past your shoulders. You, you understand all that. And yet my fear for you is, while God may have your feet, he doesn't have your face. There's no real intimacy there. Some of you, to crowd this size, statistics say maybe some of you right now are involved in an extramarital affair. May have not turned physical yet, but it's emotional. And whenever I've sat with people who are going through affairs, the dynamic is interesting. The guy still comes home to his wife and Still paying the bills and still helping out with the homework and still picking up and dropping off kids at their activities. Very dutiful. But while his wife has his duty, the mistress has his desire. My fear for some of us is that God may have our duty while the idols of this world have our desire. You only know God is Joseph. You don't know him as Abba, Father. We come now to the book of Matthew. Again, I love Pastor Gary's incredible language. God has sanctioned four biographies on the life of Jesus. And if you were... If you're new to the scriptures and you were to go, well, what's the difference? One of the, one of the things you should ask of these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is one of the things you should ask if you want to delineate the difference is, what are the audience? Matthew writes his biography with a specific audience in mind. He's writing to the Jews. Now, this is an explicit irony. Why write the gospel to some of the most moral, religious people the world has ever known? Now, here are people, the Jews, they go to synagogue every week. They go to the temple on high and holy days. The average Jew, the average Jew gave 19.2% of their annual income to the things of the Lord. Uh, contrast that, Ron Sider says in his wonderful book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, with the average American Christian who only gives 2.4% of their annual income to the things of the Lord. Ron Sider parenthetically says, if American Christians would just tithe, there's enough money in the American church to cure global poverty. But we want to pontificate and regurgitate what MSNBC says and CNN and Fox News, and we want to talk about the problems in the White House and the problems with government if the church house could just do what they're supposed to be doing. If 
if you've got any problems with that, please email me at mikeromberger at uh, mountherman.com. <laughs> So here are people, again, synagogue every week, temple high and holy days, 19.2% of their annual income. Many Jews had memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 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 Numbers, Deuteronomy. They memorized that. And yet the very fact that Matthew writes his gospel to these religious, moral 19.2% of their income giving people tells us that these are two completely different operating systems. In fact, one of the implications is you can be as religious as the day is long and headed towards hell. Religious people go to hell. So my pastor, he, um, not long before Prince died, my pastor, Prince invited my pastor over to his house for dinner. Just the two of them. My pastor used to be the CEO of the Great Western Forum, and um, before they sold the forum, Prince was the last one to give a concert there. I know, a whole bunch of questions there. Uh, but, but, but to say thank you, Prince says, Bishop Omer, I want you to come over to my house. Just the two of them. So the next day, I call my pastor, oh my gosh, what did you and his purpleness talk about? <laughs> he said, you won't believe this, but we spent the whole time talking about the Lord. I said, really? He says, yes, he's a Jehovah's Witness. I says, get out of here. I says, next you'll be telling me Prince is knocking on doors in the Hollywood Hills at God-foreseen hours on Saturday morning. He goes, he is. Can you imagine 6.30 in the morning, you open it up, there's Prince. <laughs> My pastor says, Prince, why are you doing this? Prince says, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to get in the 144,000. In Gandhi's autobiography, Gandhi he talks about how Christians were trying to proselytize him, and they gave him a Bible. <laughs> I love what Gandhi says, by the way. Gandhi says, man, I flew through Genesis and Exodus, but when I got to Leviticus, I could barely keep my eyes open. And then Gandhi says these words. He says, there's much about Christianity which is to be applauded, but the notion that I need someone to be my substitute I found repulsive. I just want you to track with me. I'm not Gandhi's judge, but if he died rejecting the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ, Gandhi, for all of his fasting and social activism, could very well be in hell. Contrast that with Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, there's a hierarchy of sins. Dahmer's at the top. Takes young boys, sleeps with them, murders them, eats them. 
But when Dahmer goes to jail, it is said he got led to faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized shortly before he died. I want you to get the juxtaposition. Gandhi, loincloth-wearing, fasting, social activist, could be in hell while your roommate in heaven could be a man who committed acts of homosexuality and pedophilia and cannibalism and murder. Friends, if you find that insulting, hear the words of Tullian Chavigian, where he says, at its core, grace insults our sensibilities. Your virginity does not get you into heaven. Hell will be filled with virgins and heaven with prostitutes. The difference is not your morality or your quiet times or your giving record. It is Christ and Christ alone. So now we come to our story. Religion fundamentally says... I do, therefore I am accepted. The gospel fundamentally says, I'm accepted, therefore I do. Religious people work for approval. Gospel people work from approval. Completely different. At our story's beginning, we are introduced to a man where if you string together all of the gospel accounts, he is described, watch it now, as a rich, young ruler. If there's a poster child for what should be satisfaction in life, it is him. He's wealthy. He's rich. He's young. Playing the numbers game, he has far more road ahead of him than behind him. He's a ruler, which means he occupies a position of influence. In fact, scholars tell us uh, the idea of ruler is not uh, politically speaking, but more religiously speaking. He's more, more likely a ruler in the local synagogue. He knows his Bible. He teaches others. He has a position of power and influence. And yet, as this story opens up, he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to learn to read your Bible, not just in its historic grammatical context, but learn to read it in its emotional context. I don't feel like he says these words stoically. I detect a, 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 a twinge of angst. Teacher, tell me something. Despite all of my money, all of my youth, all of my power, all of my prestige, I'm not satisfied. Oh, I can park here for just a few moments. It was Blaise Pascal, that great 17th century philosopher and mathematician who says this, 
all of us have a God-sized hole in our hearts that only God can fulfill. I was talking to one of my boys the other day, and we're just sitting there talking and having some man time, and I said, son, I'm a concern for you, because it just seems as if clothes and possessions mean a little too much to you. I says, I'm not judging you. I says, all of us medicate on something outside of Christ. What this man shows us, by implication, is the impotence of idolatry. I need you to get this. What is an idol? An idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. Let me give that to you again. What is an idol? An idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we all have them. They are things we turn to outside of Jesus to try to fill the hole in our soul. We all have them. Some of you, your spouse is your idol. Your sense of who you are and identity is wrapped up and tied up in your spouse. I know we don't mean any harm when we say it, but there's certain things we should never say, like, I don't know what I'd do without you. I tell my wife, you know, sweetheart, when I die, you'll shed a few tears until you see that life insurance check. And, and I've given her specific instructions not to spend it on the next dude. I will come up out this bad boy if you spend it on the next dude. But if your spouse is your idol and they die before you, what are you going to do when you look at your functional savior in the casket? See, the truth of the matter is, we married a sinner, which means your spouse does not have the capacity to fulfill you. That's Jesus' job. Our kids can become an idol, where we place on them the crushing burden and weight of deity. And one of the ways we see this is, you know, some of you, you go to your kids' games and you just act a fool, <laughs> yelling and screaming and pitching a fit, and if they don't perform the way you think they should perform, they're going to hear it again. Listen, listen, let, 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 let me just encourage you with this uplifting word, your kid ain't going pro. And I can say that with confidence because they have your genes. <laughs> you didn't go pro. They ain't going pro. Okay, so breathe. <laughs> and we say that with some humor. But the way you act, we've taken a good thing. And we've made it an ultimate thing. Some of you, success is your idol. The desire for success is a good thing, and we should go after it. And we, should, you know, we, we should give it our all, but, but you know success is your idol because when you don't achieve it, it, it disproportionately devastates you. 
Because who you are is not found in Christ. It's found in my performance. Others of you, I'm going to tread lightly here, beauty is your idol. What's looking back at you from the mirror disproportionately gives you joy. When in reality, beauty is a diminishing commodity. And some of you all are committed, and well, you should be, you know. Um, you're going to color your hair until you're 110 years old. Amen. Praise God. I didn't get much laughs on that. Mike Romberger <laughs> at MountHerman.com. Coloring your hair does not mean idolatry, but we have to be careful. But that's not my sen sense of identity. Here's a rich, young ruler who says, Jesus, I'm not satisfied. Something's missing. So he says to him, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> I love Jesus. Jesus toys with him now. He doesn't just answer his question right away. He says to him, verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? That's unbelievable. And Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Really? Martin Luther says... That in the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, the law, the law contains 613 commandments. Just in the Ten Commandments, Martin Luther says, not a single one of us can keep the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. At its core, sin is idolatry. Sin is me saying, God, I am not going to turn to you as my means of justification and goodness, I'm going to go around you and find fulfillment independent of you. It's idolatry. So the sin of adultery is it's me committing idolatry. Instead of God, me leaning into your good provision for my life, I'm going to go around that. Every sin, Martin Luther says, is us breaking the first commandment. And what does this guy say? I've kept them all. Don't you see outside of Jesus Christ, we are all incurable narcissists. C.S. Lewis says that the fountainhead to all vice is pride. That's huge. Again, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we need to be able to look at the sin beneath the sin. And what Jones and Lewis both say is the sin beneath Every sin is pride. What is pride? So it's sort of like the biggest lies I've ever told as a pastor, and again, I hope this is a safe place, although I felt judgment earlier when I talked about Michael Jackson, but, but that was interesting, but... Some of the biggest lies I've ever told on a Sunday morning have been right down front of the altar. I'm feeling judgment. Someone says to me, Pastor, 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 did you read my email this week? And without even thinking about it, yes. Holy Spirit's like, no, you didn't. 
Now, why did I tell that lie? Because I have in my mind that all great pastors read all their emails. And I need you to think I'm a great pastor. So that the lie wasn't just a lie. It was me projecting an image in your mind of something that's not real. That's pride. Joe DiMaggio, the great center fielder for the New York Yankees, he had gone away and served in World War II, and his first game back at Yankee Stadium after serving at World War II, they packed it out in the Bronx, and they were, they were cheering right before the game, Joe, 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 and the manager said, Joe, you should probably go out there, tip your cap, and so he picks up his young son, Joe DiMaggio Jr., he walks out there, and they're chanting, Joe, 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 and his young son, Joe DiMaggio Jr., looks up at his dad, he says, Dad, they're calling my name. That's cute, but that's pride. What is pride? Pride is spiritual plagiarism. It is taking the work that rightfully belongs to someone else and ascribing it to myself without citing my source. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, in order for pride to exist... There must be competition. There must be the supposed inferior other. I was walking the parking lot one day at a church I pastored in, in Memphis, and I, I was noticing on a lot of the cars there were, there were bumper stickers saying, my child goes to a certain school, and I noticed a commonality that all those schools on the bumpers, on the bumpers of those cars were private schools. Nothing's wrong with putting a private school bumper sticker in your car, but I just kind of thought for a moment, for a lot of parents, in order to feel good about my kid going to a private school, I need the perceived inferior, perceived inferior public school to exist. If all schools were the same, where's the pride? Some of you, when you pull up to your house, there's just this thing of, man, I'm just blessed and I feel good. But if all neighborhoods were the same. Pride is insidious. And I bet you this guy doesn't have a good marriage. I've kept all the commandments. Oh, he's a joy to be around at home. <laughs> Muhammad Ali was on an airplane one time. They hit a pocket of turbulence, and um, the pilot came over the PA system and says, I need everybody to move to their seats and fasten their seatbelt right now. Flight attendant going to her seat notices that the great heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, hadn't fastened his seatbelt, so she bent down, whispered in his ear so as not to embarrass him. She said, Mr. Ali, please fasten your seatbelt, to which he responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she responded, Superman don't need no airplane. Now, please, fasten your seatbelt. You know, we laugh, and Ali's incredibly endearing, but for all of his endearing traits, he was never known as being a humble person. Is it any wonder when he died, he died on his fourth marriage? See, you can't be a prideful, self-centered, narcissistic person and wonder why the friendships aren't working out, the marriage isn't flourishing, the relationship with the kids isn't happening. Me kills we.
go home on this one. I love it. Jesus is not just the son of God. He is profoundly intellectually brilliant. And this is the seminal passage that puts on display his intellectual brilliance. Notice what he does to this man. He goes, oh, you have, have you? You've kept all the commandments. Okay, let's press into this. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. He says, just keep those. He says, which ones? Notice which ones he gives him. They're all from the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two categories. The first uh, of the Ten Commandments, the first commandments, have to do with our vertical relationship with God. The, the, the second half of the Ten Commandments have to do with our horizontal relationship with others. In fact, that's why he's, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, uh, the first is, you shall love the Lord your God with the totality of your being, your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. That's vertical. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law. Notice all the commandments he mentions are the horizontal ones. It's brilliant. He says, oh, you've kept them all, have you? Well, just do me a favor. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Just love your neighbor. And the guy responds, oh, I've done it all. And Jesus says, oh, really? Okay. One more thing you still lack. Sell all you got. Give to the poor. And come follow me. What is he doing here when he tells him sell everything and give to the poor? He's saying, let's really see how deeply you love your neighbor. We know that what Jesus is telling him is not prescriptive of all of us. This isn't something we all have to do, become followers of Jesus Christ. But what is Jesus doing at that moment? He is backing this man in the corner and he's coming after his idol. Hear me. We all have idols. And whatever your idol is, you ain't got to pray about it. Jesus will come after it. If success is your idol, one of the ways I've seen Jesus come after it, he'll give you a kid who just don't care. He will bless you with a child who cares less about success. I don't care about grades. I don't care about homework. I don't care about none of it. <laughs> Rest assured, whatever that idol is, he's going to back you into a corner from time to time. And he's going to come after it. Watch it. He doesn't just tell him, go sell all you have, but he also says, and come follow me. Get rid of the idol, come follow me. That's why I love what Tim Keller says, hear it. Idols can never be removed, just replaced. Idols can never be removed, just replaced. In other words, our hearts are idol factories. There's no such thing as a heart that is not worshiping. You are worshiping something. Psalm 16, I was just meditating on it this morning. It's talking about running after another God's. And then right on the heels of that, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. He says, forgive me my idols, God, you take control. 
What's your idol? Here Jesus is getting to the heart. In the book of Ezekiel, God says when the new covenant comes, here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. This is the fundamental difference between the gospel and religion. Religion seeks to change us through behavior modification. Religion religion says, just read your Bible more, just pray more, just give more, just do more, just do more. White knuckle your way through it. God says, that's not how I work. Religion starts with behaviors, but it can never get to the heart. The gospel says, I'm going to begin with your heart. Because whatever has your heart will have your behaviors. That's why Psalm 51 is so... David is lamenting over his sin with Bathsheba. And what does he say in the midst of it? He does not say, created me a new set of behaviors. He says, created me a clean heart, oh God. My grandfather, when he was 78, the doctor said to him, Mr. Loritz, you've got three clogged arteries. This is what the doctor didn't say. He didn't say, listen, you got three clogged arteries, stop smoking, stop eating fatty foods, change your diet, and all will be well. Had he just said that, malpractice. What the doctor did say was, Mr. Loritz, three clogged arteries, I now have to do for you what you can't do for yourself. We're going to have to go in and deal with your heart. And I'm going to have to take out the old arteries and put in some new ones. And then on the heels of that, you then need to change your behavior. It does no good to change your behavior if you've got a bad heart. So if your problem is, Jesus has my duty, but not my desire. You need to join in with David. Say, God, would you create in me a clean heart? And renew a right spirit within me. Create in us a clean heart, oh God. You didn't just die for our behaviors. Take out our heart of stone. Give us a heart of flesh. It's in Jesus' name we pray.